Intelligence bears the precious gift of bringing into being the dream only imagination makes possible our seeing. And the dreams found deep within the chambers of our hearts are best expressed and brought to life by the creative arts. This poem presents the worldview of Robert M. Axt, our guest on this edition of Radio Curious. Bob Axt is a retired contractor who self-studied to become an architect, whose last name was changed three times by the time he was 10 years old, and now, in his mid-80s, he's a poet and a patron of the arts. Bob Axt, who's lived in Ukiah, California since the 1960s, shared his childhood story in the November 2016 presentation of First Person Plural, a monologue series taught and directed by the Ukiah dramatist Ellen Weed. Bob Axt created an enriched family life for himself, along with a life of artistic imagery, which he manifests in his work as an architect and in his passion as a poet. In the first half of this edition of Radio Curious, Bob reads from his monologue, Mixed Messages. It describes the loneliness and cruelty of his childhood while living with relatives or step-parents and often alone by himself after the age of 12. In the second half, we discuss how his life might have been had his father not been banished from his life when Bob was two. And Bob shares his thoughts about the importance of fomenting the creative imagination. By the time I was 10 years old, I had lived with three different last names. I was born Robert Maurice Eisner, the son of Mark Eisner and his wife Ethel, the daughter of Maud and Maurice Berkson. Shortly after I was born, my mother contracted tuberculosis and she was isolated in an upstairs bedroom in her parents' home and my father and I were sent to live in the servants' quarters over my grandparents' garage. My earliest memory is being carried up the stairs in my father's arms to my mother's room and being held carefully in the doorway and seeing my mother lying silently in the bed in the room beyond. I stayed with my father, Mark Eisner, until I was about two years old. My grandmother, Maud, a domineering woman, became angry with my father. He'd been unfaithful to his wife and had committed adultery with a woman named Blossom. Maud Berkson banished Mark Eisner from the house, from my mother, and from my life, and had her husband, Maurice Berkson, a Chicago attorney, prepare and file a legal document that prevented my father from ever contacting me until both my mother and her brother, John, had passed away. Maud also had my name changed, and it went from Eisner to Berkson. 
I was sent, then, to live with the Weisbergs, distant relatives of my grandmother's, who lived in an apartment in Evanston, Illinois. The Weisbergs, I called them Aunt Nini and Uncle Aki, were a warm and loving couple who genuinely cared for me. Life with them was very comfortable. I can recall being taken by the hand through Lincoln Park, looking at the animals with Uncle Aki. In 1938, before I was five years old, my mother was sent to live and recover in the Olive Sanitarium, a tuberculosis sanitarium in Altadena, California. My grandparents moved to California to be near her, and when they did, they took me with them. We lived there in a house in the San Fernando Valley, rented from the movie actor Paul Muni. While there, Maud hired A.C. and Maggie Black to stay there and act as their workers. Maggie was cook and housekeeper, and A.C. was the butler and the chauffeur for my grandfather, Maurice, who never, ever learned to drive. Maud, on the other hand, never let anybody else drive her. She drove herself. I was very fond of A.C. He would set me on his lap in the car and let me hold the steering wheel while he drove up and down Libet Avenue, the street we lived on. When I was seven years old, my mother was released from the sanitarium and my grandparents bought some property in Encino. They had two homes built on it, one for them and one for my mother, her brother, Uncle John, and me. And Uncle John was, became my friend. He would play catch with me. He would do all sorts of things with me, and he taught me to swim in the swimming pool at the house. Soon after we moved into the new house, my mother met Edward Axt, a man as domineering in his own way as was Maud Bergson, and a lot meaner. In a matter of months, he married my mother. My name was changed again, this time from Bergson to Axt. At night, he would come into my bedroom and punish me for almost anything I had done. And he loved to tell me dark stories of violence. I was eight years old when Pearl Harbor broke out and World War II started. Edward Axt immediately got a job as a gun-toting security guard at the defense plant. He'd always wanted to carry a gun but when he tried to join the army, he was rejected. He told us it was because he had flat feet, but in fact, it was because he had failed the mental examination. Finally, in 1943, he was permitted to join the army. He joined as a hospital attendant at a base in Oklahoma, and soon after, my mother and I followed him there to Muskogee, at that time, 
I was about to turn ten years old. We had just moved to Muskogee and were staying in adjoining rooms in the Muskogee Hotel. One evening, I was sitting in my, in my room, listening to the radio, when I heard Edward Axe shout, swear at my mother, and slap her. Crying, I pounded on the door between the rooms and sobbed, Mommy, Daddy doesn't love you. Let's move back to California. Edward Axe burst through the door and growled at me. I don't know who you are. He threw me down on the bed, took off his belt, and whipped me with it. We stayed in Oklahoma until the war ended. During that time, Edward would come to our home on a pass every Wednesday and also on alternate weekends. He would always find reasons to beat me and my mother a quiet person, always remained silent. I received no allowance while we lived in Oklahoma. To get money, I sold newspapers, the Muskogee Times Democrat, on street corners. I paid two cents for each paper and sold each one for a nickel. If I sold ten papers, I could go to the Saturday movie matinee. If I sold 20, I could see the show and get a hamburger and milkshake afterwards. The war ended. We returned to California. My brother Duane was born. Again, we lived in the house in Encino, but in a matter of months, Ethel and Edward moved to Laytonville, a town in Northern California, a very small one. Ed wanted to be a cowboy. They got a ranch. Uncle John married and moved away. I lived in the house in Encino alone at the age of 12. During that time, I spent the school year at a military boarding school and in the summer lived alone in the house in Encino. There I earned money for food, picking oranges in my grandparents' orchard packing them in a box in the rumble seat of my 1934 ragtop Dodge and selling them to restaurants up and down Ventura Boulevard. In those days before freeways, Ventura Boulevard was Highway 101. The money was enough to survive on, and on weekends my grandparents would have me come and eat dinner with them in the upper house where they lived. My brother Duane had a life that paralleled mine. When he turned 12, he too was sent to live in a military boarding school. I can remember going to his graduation when I was around 30. The day after we returned to Mendocino County, I was walking by Ed Axt's office when I heard him shouting at Duane, You are not ready for college. Not yet. First, you must join the army and become a soldier. Duane came out of the room with tears in his eyes. I went into the room and told Edward that he should let Duane decide his own life. Ed Axe pulled his pistol out of a drawer. 
pointed it at me and growled, I don't know who you are. Go away before I kill you. Soon after and during the Korean War, I joined the Marine Corps. I went to Hawaii, and in Hawaii, I worked as an electronics technician setting up the DEW line, the distant early warning line, a radar system that protected us from onslaughts by the communist Russians who were our considered enemies. While I was in Hawaii, I joined the Marine Corps swimming team. Uncle John had taught me well. I ended up getting the world's title and setting the world's record for the 100 and 200 meter breaststroke. I returned to California after the Korean War, left the Marine Corps, resettled in the San Fernando Valley, and met Janice Axt, or Janice Socha was her name then, who became my wife. We had four children, the first two born in Studio City in California. Time passed. My Uncle John, who had left and was constantly leaving, was jailed in Peru for smuggling drugs, and he was shot and killed, escaping for prison. When I was 46, around 1980, my mother passed away from influenza and the ravages of the tuberculosis that she never really totally recovered from. A few weeks after that, I received a large package from my real father, Mark Eisner. It contained pictures of him, of my mother, of his wife, Blossom, of me as an infant, and told stories and had articles and letters about his life in Chicago. A few years earlier, I had been in Chicago, and I tried to find him. I tried to get his address out of the phone book. It was no longer there. Neither was a phone number. Fortunately, the package I received had an address on it in Longboat Key, Florida. His letter to me included the phone number, and I called him immediately. We spoke fondly to one another. I got airplane tickets to Florida as soon as I could for myself and for my son, a teenager, Keith. My son went with me, and it was only a matter of time before Keith Axe changed his name to Keith Eisner. While we were there, we had a delightful time with my father and his family. After that, it was only a matter of time before Keith Axe changed his name to Keith Eisner. If my name hadn't been on the door of my business, I would have changed my name also. Maybe I still will, to honor the man who was my real father, a real friend, and had saved memorabilia for me over all the years we had been apart. I can't help wondering what my life might have been like if my grandmother Maud Berkson, hadn't banished my father, Mark Eisner, from my life 
when I was so very young. Bob Axt was a participant in a program in Ukiah in November 2016 called First Person Plural, a series of monologues prepared with the encouragement and the direction of dramatist Ellen Weed and presented to our community here in Ukiah. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Bob, you say that you can't help wondering what your life might have been if your grandmother, Maud Berkson, hadn't banished your father from your life when you were so very young. What do you think your life would have been like? One thing that I have always regretted is that because of the fact that I was effectively removed from my father, my mother removed by tuberculosis from me, and my grandparents sending me to live with nobody really except their servants, perhaps I would have not had a life that was for so long alone. Because from the time we returned from Oklahoma, from the time I was 12, until the time I was married, 15, 16 years later, I was flying solo, doing individual things without any real sense of family. I was alone. And that was, to me, just the way it was. But now, later in life, I realized I had opportunities or should have had opportunities that I never did have. What would those opportunities have been? They would have been friendships. They would have been a sense of community, of feeling part of something, of belonging. I really never felt like I belonged to family or community. I was always sort of doing it on my own. Did that change when you married Janice? Absolutely. We had four children, Kevin, Karen, Kathy, and Keith. And we lived together for hmm, 35 years. I will say this, that we were both very proud of our children. They're all creative artists. They all have their own way in life that is beyond just doing things. In your life, you have made uh, a significant impression here in our town of Ukiah in your work as an architect. Can you tell us about that experience, becoming an architect after you uh, became a licensed contractor? Yes. Uh, when I returned to Southern California after leaving the Marine Corps and marrying Janice, I worked for a while as an electronics engineer and then realized what I was doing was helping to design things to kill people. The electronic systems that directed missiles over the world to land and destroy other places. I couldn't stand that. I left it. And I met a friend whom I'd known in junior high school. He wanted to be a general contractor, but he didn't have the money. I had saved up a pretty good sum. So we started a company called Ventura Construction together, and I became a general contractor. We were quite successful and were able to ultimately hire our own architects. And those architects worked for us. 
I would look at what they were doing and really enjoy seeing it. Then I'd go home and call up plumbers, electricians, and other workers to get on the job tomorrow and decided that I'd much rather work for my architect employees than be their contractor employer. And I did. And although I never went to architecture school, in those days, if you spent enough years working for an architect and passed all the examinations, you could get a license. This I did. And I've enjoyed it over the years because in the process of being an architect, what you do is you have a client, you determine what the elements are that he needs to have something built for, and you close your eyes and imagine how you would put those things together. Once you have imagined how you would put those things together, you do a preliminary design, then you do working drawings, then you have construction. And all of those things are creative, and they start with ideas in your mind, things you imagine, and they end with things that are actually built. That made architecture great fun for me. Transferring uh, those images that you have in your mind and putting them together uh, to music and the arts, how yes. do you do that? Well, there's, there's a great deal of difference, of course, because when you're an architect, you're working with things that ultimately become solid and structures that are real. When you're working in the arts, music, be it theater, writing, poetry, painting, any of the arts, while those things become real, they're not constructed. They are to be enjoyed. And while, of course, architecture is to be enjoyed, it is to be used physically. And as an architect, the things you put together, the things that you create from what you have learned from your clients become things that are used. And that in itself is this feeling of gratitude to see them being used. Bob Axt, I'd like to ask you to read a poem uh, dealing with the creative and fine arts that uh, you wrote several years ago. Oh, my. I wrote this for the Ukiah Symphony Association. Being a, somebody who loves the arts, I've been on the board of directors of both the Ukiah Symphony Association and Ukiah Players Theater for many years. This poem is called Support the Arts. Intelligence bears the precious gift of bringing into being the dreams only imagination makes possible our seeing. And the dreams found deep within the chambers of our hearts are best expressed and brought to life in the creative arts. That was written just because it's how I feel. And I would like to say that what that implies is the value of the ability to see beyond reality into 
the world of imagination because that's where creative activity comes from. Bob Axt, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you share with us a eureka or an aha moment that changed your view, your perception of the world, perhaps changed your direction in life? I think the biggest thing was when I got out of the service and married and we had children, and I started to dream of the lives they would have and what the future held, and suddenly realized that working with things from day to day, pounding nails, drawing computerized versions of working drawings for buildings, was nothing as enjoyable and nothing as important in the very long run as having imagination and then creating what it was your imagination showed you. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Right now, I'm pretty much relaxed. I do a little bit of work but the one thing which I do is write poetry. It's not important poetry. It just expresses the world of imagination that I like to dwell in. And finally, Bob asked, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? In terms of a book that's specific, it's hard for me to pick one out. I would say that perhaps the best of them all are books that were written for children. <laughs> I can close my eyes and see pictures and I can't think of any words. What are the pictures that you see? Uh, it's animals and people. Alice in Wonderland, there you go. Alice in Wonderland has more to teach us than perhaps almost anything else. When you say Alice in Wonderland has more to teach us than almost anything else, what are some of the lessons? The lessons are simply that the world you stand in, the world that you have to manage every day, the life you have to take care of, feed, rest, work, is very important, but equally important is the life beyond, the life of imagination, the life that Alice lived. Bob Axt, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. Robert M. Axt is a retired contractor who studied to become an architect whose last name was changed three times by the time he was 10 years old, and now, in his mid-80s, enjoys life as a poet and a patron of the arts. The book he recommends is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. This program was recorded on December 11, 2016. 
Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website. They're free for anyone to enjoy, download, and broadcast as you wish. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Savannah Robinson is our intern. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.